0: Today on A Hard Call.
1: It's very hard for somebody to figure out what it would feel like to live day by day with, with this device, what it would feel like to be plugged at night. Right? So, so the, this time travel aspect of trying to put yourself into a different situation in the future and try to imagine what it would feel like, it's just very, very hard to do. And, and I suspect that we don't do a good job at that.
2: From the University of Colorado Center for Bioethics and Humanities, this is Hard Call, the podcast about the toughest choices we're asked to make about our health. I'm Dr. Matt Winia.
0: And I'm Elaine Grant, and this is the last episode in this season of Hard Call. If you've been listening to the whole series and you haven't yet left us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, please take a minute and do that for us now. The more reviews and ratings we get, the easier it is for other folks to find us.
2: So over the last three episodes, we've been following the true story of a patient we're calling Max who's being played by an actor for the podcast.
0: At the end of the last episode, we told you why we've been using an actor to play our main character. And that's because Max has
2: died. He's not around to tell us firsthand how he felt about any of the choices he faced, especially this last one.
0: How and when to die.
2: So we are going to tell you what happened to Max, um, but... Brace yourself. You're going to face the toughest hard call, really, of all. Was the decision to use this very high-tech treatment, implanting a sort of electronic heart, to lengthen Max's life, was it worth it?
0: First, back to our story. As you undoubtedly remember...
2: Max is suffering from severe congestive heart failure.
3: His chance of being alive in a year is probably... 20% if we keep trying to do what we're doing.
2: So after a great deal of debate, Max is given a left ventricular assist device, or LVAD, which he understands. It's kind of like an artificial heart. And because he's not eligible for a heart transplant, he got his LVAD as so-called destination therapy.
0: Meaning the plan is that he'll have this device in him until he dies. And remember, among many other things, That means he's attached to a battery or to an electrical outlet for the rest of his days. Yeah,
2: and even though there were a lot of questions raised in our first couple episodes about whether Max and his daughter, Sheila, would be able to take care of the LVAD at home, because it's a very complicated device. The
0: fact is, he does okay for several months. Until the
2: LVAD gets infected. The doctors have said this, with this infection, it's incurable.
0: So, in our last episode, Max is suffering. He's having fevers, he's in an ICU, and he's in pain.
2: It's it's also causing existential suffering. Max is beginning to wonder why he's pressing on when he knows he's going to die from this infection eventually.
0: So, in the midst of all this suffering, physical and mental, Max asks the cardiologist taking care of him to...
2: Turn it off. I want to be done
0: but the cardiologist refuses.
2: For this doctor- But
0: not all doctors.
2: To turn it off would be to murder Max. This cardiologist basically says, look, turning off an LVAD is not like stopping some other medical treatment. Not even like taking someone off a respirator. The device is implanted in you. It's become a part of who you are. So turning it off would be like intentionally turning off some other vital organ.
0: But still, Max is an adult, and as long as he's of sound mind, he has a pretty well-established legal right to refuse any medical treatment. And that includes a legal right to stop treatments that have already been started, including an LVAD.
2: At the same time, in general, if a physician thinks it's morally wrong to do something, we avoid requiring him or her to do it. So say a doctor finds it immoral to perform an abortion or participate in assisted dying where that's legal.
0: Or a doctor doesn't want to prescribe birth control. Any of those
2: things. Really, if a doctor has a conscientious objection to almost any medical action, we generally let them opt out of doing it.
0: The problem for Max is that this cardiologist doesn't just refuse to turn off the ALVAD. He also won't turn Max's care over to another physician who will.
2: Yeah, because he says... That would be making him complicit in an act that, again, to him, feels like murder.
0: So this was obviously a problem for Max. But it was also hugely upsetting to the nurses caring for him. They empathized with his suffering. And they also knew he had a legal right to stop treatment. But they had to follow the doctor's orders to keep treating Max anyway. That caused them something called moral distress, That's when you're forced to do something you feel is wrong.
2: Yeah, and this brings us to the hard call that we left you with last time. We asked, if you were the hospital CEO, would you require this doctor to turn Max's care over to someone else who would turn off Max's LVAD?
0: Fulfilling Max's wishes.
2: Yeah, right, but despite the doctor feeling strongly that that would make him complicit in Max's death.
0: You can see how people have voted on this question so far by visiting our website, Now, uh,
2: Regardless, though, how you or others voted, here's what actually happened to Max.
0: The doctor refused to turn his care over to anyone else, and the hospital didn't force the issue.
2: So at this point... Max's LVAD is still running.
0: Which reminds me that Max was worried before about exactly the question that he is now facing.
2: How do I die? With, with this LVAD, how do I... how do I die? With blood still pumping, the machine's still on, blood still moving.
3: I don't know. No one's told me yet.
2: If the LVAD had been turned off... Max would have died quickly.
3: You know, it's scary, but it's actually comforting.
2: That's Dr. Larry Allen, who we talked to in earlier episodes. He's head of the heart failure unit at the University of Colorado. Here's how he describes death when an LVAD is turned off.
3: When you put an LVAD in a patient and there's it's supporting that patient's blood flow in life, when we turn it off, patients die almost immediately. There's some been some series where we look at 20 patients who've had their device turned off and what does death look like? And um, the majority actually pass out within seconds. And almost all of those patients are dead in 20 minutes.
0: And there's a good reason for this.
3: The technology of left ventricular assist devices is that they have a propeller in them and a tube. And when that propeller's running, it pushes blood forward. Um, but interestingly, when you turn the, the electricity off and the propeller stops moving, then the tube is just a tube and the blood goes backwards. So to some extent, once you turn that device off that's in place, it actually hastens death. It allows the blood pressure to drop to almost nothing very quickly. So we tend to see with the new devices, the propeller-based devices, that death is quick.
0: Which you might think sounds pretty scary.
3: Well. For some people, they may say, wow, that's scary. Wow, that's uh, permanent. (laughs) Wow, that's pretty abrupt. But to some extent, it's actually a very peaceful, quick way to go. So if we were honest about the fact that we can turn these devices off, and when things aren't going well and we're willing, and, and it's time to say this is the end, it's actually a very simple, easy, quick way for people to go that's not painful. Um, And I think part of the problem is that we haven't been honest about that. So families don't know when they can turn it off. Patients are in pain um, and continue to have pain and anxiety um, because we don't just acknowledge that we we actually have a solution. Um, You know, people fear death, and I think there's a healthy reason for that. Uh, But when the time is there, to some extent, if we were honest about it, LVADs Mm -hmm. offer a very a very easy way to extend life, but also a very easy way to have an abrupt, comfortable end.
2: But for Max, that abrupt, painless end by just turning off the LVAD, that's not going to happen. So his question is now much more important. If the LVAD doesn't get turned off... How do I die with with this LVAD? How do I... How do I die?
0: The Lvat is just a machine. So it'll keep circulating blood even if Max has an infection or a stroke or another heart attack, even if he loses consciousness. It's a relentless machine.
2: Hey, you could say it's a heartless machine.
0: <laughs> I suppose you could. <laughs> Sorry.
2: <laughs> Medical humor. Uh, but I, So the point here is there's actually not a simple answer to Max's question because this machine really is relentless. It'll just keep running as long as there's power.
0: When I first learned about this problem, Matt, I, I just I didn't even know what to think. From a layperson's point of view, you have a patient whose heart just keeps working no matter what. There was no pulse anyway, so it, it really confused me. How do you know when someone has died? I spoke to a nurse practitioner who cares for a lot of LVAD patients about this. She said this issue is really tough on families and even on nurses who aren't used to it.
2: Yeah, so it often does come down to when do the doctors and nurses feel like it's okay to just turn it off because it's become clear the patient is unconscious and is never going to wake up or the patient's actually found to be dead by neurological criteria, what we often call brain death.
0: And that's basically what happened to Max. Right,
2: right. No one turned off his LVAD. Finally, the nursing team arranged, with some difficulty, um, for Max to leave the hospital and go to hospice. And in that transfer, they stopped his antibiotics and they stopped his blood thinners.
0: If you are thinking that means the hospital stopped some treatment—the antibiotics and his blood thinners—but not another treatment, the LVAD, you're right, Matt. Isn't this splitting the difference?
2: Yeah. What actually happened is basically in line with what the cardiologist taking care of Max said he thought was ethically acceptable, which is that it was OK to stop treatments coming from outside the body, like antibiotics, but not OK to stop something implanted, like the LVAD, because that has become a part of you.
0: So was it losing the antibiotics and the blood thinner that eventually yeah, killed yeah, Max? Yeah, basically, the
2: antibiotics were presumably slowing the infection down, uh, even if not curing it. And the blood thinners are basically required to prevent the LVAD from clotting up and and creating strokes. So when those were stopped and he was transferred to the hospice, he died just a couple days after arriving in the hospice. He lost consciousness and passed away. Um, It's possible he had a stroke uh, or maybe the infection just became overwhelming. There, There was not an autopsy, so we don't really know the final cause of
0: Max's death. In any event, whatever actually killed him, it wasn't until after he was already clearly dead that the nurses turned off that machine. In the end, Max had the LVAD for just under eight months before he died. He never felt great while he had it, and toward the end, he wanted to turn it off.
2: So that poses the question we started with.
0: The simplest but the toughest of questions. Was it worth it? Was it worth it for Max to have gotten the LVAD? What is another eight months of life worth?
1: So my name is Dan Ariely. I'm the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University.
0: He's also the best-selling author of Predictably Irrational and several other books. We called Dan because...
1: I'm interested in all kinds of ways in which people make not so ideal decisions. And I also like to think about what we could do to make people make slightly better decisions.
2: We wanted to ask Dan about Max's decisions because he studies decision regret. And toward the end, Max has a lot of regret about getting the LVAD. And as it turns out, this is a fairly common experience. When researchers study LVAD patients, some number of them, especially if things don't go so well after a few months, they start to regret their decision to take such a difficult path. So I asked Dan about this. How do people synthesize decisions that they've made over time and sort of look back at things, Um, is there a way that people tend to look at a a long course of time or even a short course of time where things have varied a lot and bring that all together and say, yes, it was worth it or no,
1: it wasn't worth it? Yeah. So first of all, people are not so good at this. You know, We have a huge cognitive bias to try and think of ourselves as good decision makers. So in general, people are trying to figure out all kinds of ways in which we can convince ourselves that whatever decisions we made were such good decisions. So if you said, you know, people should regret, let's say 20% of their decisions, how many do they actually regret? Well, think about regretting, it's probably lower than that. Because if it's kind of close to being regret or not, we could probably kind of recruit all of our cognitive capacity to convince ourselves that this was actually a good decision. So, kind of coming up to the conclusion this was not a good decision is not something we do we do very well now, in terms of regret, um one of the things that we regret is when the outcome is not the one we wanted, but of course, you know when we make decisions, we don't know the the outcome. We should regret if we follow the bad process, but it's a little harder to quantify the process, so we look at the outcome. so imagine that a patient like doesn't think about the decision well, doesn't take the information well into account, makes a decision and it turned out fantastic. They're not going to regret it even though they didn't follow a good decision process. On the other hand, if they made a fantastic decision, they thought about it very carefully, they took everything into account, they consulted all the experts and then it just didn't work out correctly, they're probably going to regret it because of the outcome, not because of the process. But, you know, in medicine, you can't guarantee an outcome. You can just guarantee that you um, are thinking correctly about about the process. So so we think about that. Now, all of this being said, when we make decisions about things that are big, that we haven't made before, we're kind of putting ourselves into the future. We're asking ourselves, how would the future look like if I made this decision? How will the future look like if I didn't make this decision? And... If you think about the case like this it's very hard for somebody to figure out what it would feel like to live day by day with with this device what it would feel like to be plugged at night what it would feel like to have new types of fears Uh, be dependent on family members right so so the this time travel aspect of trying to put yourself into a different situation in the future and try to imagine what it would feel like it's just very, very hard to do. And and I suspect that we don't do a good job at that. Now, one other thing is of course we don't know what the regret would have been if somebody did not take a particular medical treatment. Right? Uh, well, if they would be dead, there would be no regret at that moment, assuming there's no afterlife, or that you can't regret in the afterlife. But but we have regret is kind of non symmetrical. So if you take one path, you can regret taking that path. But you can't really compare to how much regret you would have had if you didn't take this path. So um, overall, would I judge that this person makes, made a mistake or not? I would probably think he did. And, and I would say that if people regret something, it's probably kind of a big regret already. And if somebody has lots of new learning that happened if they're living in a in a way that they couldn't have imagined understood intuit, feel and now they understand much more about it and they regret it they're probably right they probably did make a mistake
0: Dan if you imagine that these sorts of decisions are gonna be more and more common as we move into the future because there are more and more devices that can prolong our lives. Are there ways that people can feel more confident about making a good decision when they're predicting an unknown
1: future? So, so I think yes. So I think we could imagine there was a movie for each medical condition about, that we call it, discussions with my future self. And in that movie, you would see somebody like you living on the day-to-day. And you would see the the gruesome, difficult details of everything in life. You know, not just the happy part, right? When you tell people, hey, would you like to live longer or not? It seems like a no-brainer. But maybe what we need to do is we need to give people a sense of what life is like. Right? What does it mean to be connected every night to to the wall I you know you describe it to me I don't understand what it feels like can you can you sleep are you are you worried that the electricity would stop Um if, if there's nobody to take care of you are you do you feel dependent do you feel helpless um, what can you do what can't you do I think we should try and try hard to give people a better sense Of how their lives would look like but the second thing and the one that is more difficult and complex is that i think that as we move to those aspects and those new technologies i think doctors or somebody in the medical profession maybe it's not doctors need to take a bigger part in helping people make decisions so that one of the most interesting and depressing studies in social science is a study in which they compared french parents American parents who gave birth to a very sick child and in the US people give birth to a sick child and the parent the doctor say hey here the statistics here are the papers you decide in France the physicians say what they think they should do you should terminate you should not terminate and no matter what happens the American parents are more miserable why because they wake up every morning and ask themselves did I make the right decision Right? And, and this, is, we call, this is called the burden of choice, the idea that you're s- just by having to make a choice, <laughs> you've already paid a price. So, so when we think about big decisions like this, you could say, who is a better person to make the decision? The patient who is seeing this for the first time in their life, and probably the last time in their life, and they can read a little bit about it, but they don't truly understand it? Or the physician who has seen hundreds, Of those people before that understand the costs and the benefit and understand what people have gone through and so on and might be much more informed and able to make decisions so it's tough i don't want to be in anybody's situation where they have to tell to somebody i think you should do it or i think you should you know uh, uh, die peacefully but i think that somebody in the medical profession uh, should take on this responsibility rather than pushing it to the patients who are sick and stressed and without capacity to make decisions and not enough information to make those decisions.
2: I want to say here, we went on to have what I thought was a pretty interesting conversation about the challenges of doctors being asked to be more forceful in making these kinds of decisions for their patients. And that's especially in light of a variety of different interests that doctors might have, from financial interests to the desire to get good quality scores and so on. So if you're interested in that part of the conversation, we'll post the full interview on our website.
0: In the meantime, what might help right now is a concept that Dan called Counterfactual yeah. thinking.
2: Counterfactual thinking. I wanted to know how people react to tough decisions when they try first one thing, call it plan A, but then plan A doesn't work. So they move on to the next solution, plan B. right? And you might think people would feel better, that they would have less regret moving to plan B because they gave plan A a good try before they moved on.
0: But in fact, Dan said, people tend to feel even worse if they try one thing and it fails, so they have to try again with something else.
1: It's very hard to to feel good when you walk away from something. The regret is just very powerful, what is called counterfactual thinking. You know, and, and what's so interesting about counterfactual thinking is how easy it is to imagine the other reality.
0: So the question in counterfactual thinking is, How easy is it to imagine a different set of facts? Because the easier it is for you to imagine things going differently, the more regret you're going to have.
1: So imagine you are late for your flight and you're late by two minutes or two hours. Which one makes you feel more miserable? The two minutes, why? Because it's so easy to imagine a different reality. So what happened is that when we make a decision that decision point is so salient and so clear, and it's so easy to say to yourselves, I should have done something different. That regret is just incredibly potent and powerful.
2: I love this point, because there are so many examples of this, like the, the poor guy who misses the free throw at the end of the game. <laughs> he is always the one the fans will say lost the game, but why isn't it the guys who miss free throws or layups in the middle of the game? They're just as guilty of missing points, and those points are, they all have equal weight at the end of the game. But no, it's the guy who missed the free throws at the end because you can so easily imagine if he had made the shots, your team would have won. And so that's who you
0: wanna blame. So, if this is human nature, it might be that no matter what, Max is bound to regret his decision because he didn't enjoy the extra months of life. We're human, right? So what Dan is saying is even if I make a supremely rational decision, if things don't work out for the best, I'll regret it. But this leaves me a little confused. Matt, does this mean outright that the LVAD was not worth it for Max?
2: I, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think it kind of depends on your perspective, right? So I asked Larry Allen, the heart failure specialist, about this. You might be surprised what he said. Looking back on it, looking back on this patient who, um, for whom it was difficult to decide whether to get the LVAD, uh, and then for whom um, life after the LVAD was okay but not awesome, and then uh, life became quite uncomfortable, uh, even so unbearable as to want to stop the machine. Um, After all that, was it worth it?
3: I think that's the that's the question, right? We have people who are essentially dying from their heart failure, and now we have technology that offers the possibility of lengthening life and actually improving quality of life. But it doesn't always work, and it's very difficult for us as experts in this field um, to know who's going to do well and who's mm-hmm. not going to do well after getting that kind of aggressive um, uh, treatment. Uh, so you know it's hard. I think I answer the question myself, which is sometimes you take a chance, you roll the dice and you go forward with it. And, and so even when it doesn't work out, it doesn't mean the wrong decision was made. It's just that we have to be prepared for the range of possible outcomes that can happen, that we hope for the best, we plan for the worst. We make informed decisions, and then we 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 do what we we can.
2: Yeah, one of the things that was interesting to me when I first learned about this case was that um, it really is in a kind of gray area because uh, there are people who get an LVAD and have immediate complications and pass away within a month. Um, and for those people, even as an individual, you might say well, it really wasn't worth it. They would have been better off not having done this. For others, they get the LVAD and they live for, you know, years, potentially. Yeah, even decades and they ha- now. Even decades yeah, now. And which they, is amazing. Right. And they, and they have a fair, fairly good quality of life. And for them, as an individual, clearly it is worth it. Um, this patient falls, Max falls in the middle.
3: He does. And- you know, I think that's where it's challenging. You know, I, I I often tell people that they worry about going to the operating room and dying. And while that's a terrible outcome, to some extent, it's not the worst outcome. The worst outcome is to survive the surgery, end up in the intensive care unit, and have complication after complication, uh, never feeling good, um you know, really being in limbo about whether things are ever going to get better. Um, lots of pain and suffering sometimes. And then ultimately after lots of effort on the, on the part of not just the, the providers, the nurses, the doctors, but the effort of the family and the patient, then having uh, death happen. Now, that, that's the worst. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish we knew going in that when, you know, who that is, when that's going to happen. But we don't.
2: If that's the case... If we'll just never be able to say with certainty in advance whether it'll be worth it for any particular person, then maybe we're asking the wrong question. Instead of asking, was it worth it for Max, we should be asking, what about for society? Was it worth it for society, or more specifically for his health insurance plan, to pay for this very expensive, very risky technology for someone like Max.
4: Oh, hi, well, I'm Steve Pearson.
2: Steve and I have been friends and colleagues for a bit over 20 years, and as soon as this question about cost and value came up, I gave him a call. He joined us from his office in Boston.
4: I'm the founder and president of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, or ICER.
2: ICER is a nonprofit academic think tank, and they do independent reviews of new drugs, new tests, new medical devices, to look at their comparative effectiveness and their value.
0: They do this mostly for insurance companies to help them decide what to cover and how much to pay for new medical advances.
2: Yeah, So I mentioned to Steve, the cost of Max's care was probably around a half a million dollars in the last eight months of his life. And I asked, was that worth it? And Steve was very quick to point out, looking at this from a societal perspective, might not help much when it comes to judging whether it was worth it for Max as an individual.
4: But I can't stress enough that, you know, the data that you would find in the published journals on this procedure or this device would be statistics about certain side effects. They might be statistics about average months lived, but none of that can address the question of would he be happy? What is he seeking in the final years of his life? And w- will this procedure and device give him an opportunity to to have potential benefits that would be meaningful enough, again, to, to undergo the risks of the procedure, et cetera? So that's just the pure human, um, if you will, equation around which we think about, was it worth it? It certainly doesn't sound, unfortunately, the way it worked out for him, as if he would have judged that it was worth it.
0: But what about when it comes to looking at the value of paying for LVADs for society?
4: And the key way that, that ethicists often think of that is at the societal level, what is the um, opportunity cost? If we spend this on this patient or for you know, all patients with this kind of situation, what would we be, in principle, giving up? Would it mean that we need to delay or defer or even cancel a uh, other interventions in the health system that would bring better benefits for other patients. Um, Would there be broader public health initiatives that would have to be cut back even? And or would it lead to higher overall tax rates or insurance rates that would put pressure on access to care for, for a broader set of patients? These can feel very nebulous but they are part of what people talk about when they think about whether the value of a service is worth it not just for an individual patient, but really for our healthcare system.
0: Wait a minute. The problem I see in thinking about opportunity costs is the healthcare system spends money on all kinds of things, including things like waterfalls in the lobbies of hospitals or executive compensation, which arguably provide even less value for patients than LVADs.
2: Right. And many health plans are actually operated for profit. And the profit motive makes this even more complicated because if they were to save money by not implanting an LVAD, they might just use that money to pay out investors. Exactly.
0: I mean, I suppose paying for LVADs might take money away from, say, paying for vaccines or fighting epidemics, for instance. But truly, money saved by not giving someone a shot with an LVAD is pretty likely to go into the pockets of investors or executives, wouldn't you say?
2: Well, I, I think what you're saying, Elaine, is that Healthcare is not what economists call a closed system, where money saved on one person's treatment is automatically then available to care for someone else within the system. Instead, money saved on care can be diverted out for other uses, like the grand piano in the lobby.
0: Right. Even with a government-financed plan like, say, a Medicaid or a Medicare plan were to decide not to cover an LVAD for a patient, The money saved doesn't necessarily go to treat other patients. I mean, it might be that politicians have decided cutting taxes is more important than spending money on expensive medical treatments.
2: True. Um, On the other hand, what some of my ethicist friends have pointed out is that healthcare isn't a completely open system either. Because if you do spend money on an LVAD, you for sure can't also spend that money on anything else including things like primary care or vaccines, where a dollar spent now might actually save money down the road.
0: Hmm. But I guess that the people who make and sell LVADs and who implant them, who are profiting from them, I guess they do want insurance companies paying for the LVADs.
2: Oh, sure. Well, let's go back to my conversation with Larry Allen, the cardiologist. Can I also ask you to... uh, think about that question of was it worth it, um, not from the point of view of Max as an individual patient, but sort of from the point of view of society as a whole. Obviously, this is very expensive. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, this is how new technologies evolve and get better. So as a sort of social uh, experiment, if you will, what, what would you say, is it worth it, to give LVADs to a bunch of people, knowing that many of them aren't going to do very well, some are going to be in this middle range, some are going to do very well.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the question in medicine these days is value, right? We can do lots of things, and some of them provide great health benefits, um, and some of them don't. And then there's stuff in between. Um, and that, that may play out differently. And I think LVADs are a great example be, of, of thinking of value because you have patients who are dying. And if we put LVADs in a handful of patients, uh, you know, half of them uh, on average will live more than five years when they would have been dead within weeks to months otherwise. So here you have a technology. And, that, and that's that's today. That's today. Right? So that's today. five
2: years ago, those numbers would have been quite different.
3: That's right. Ten and, years ago,
2: they were even much more different.
3: And you know one of the 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 data that that we sometimes use is these analyses of the the cost to the benefit. Um, and so we talk about quality adjusted life years and how much money mm-hmm. needs to be spent on a societal level. And so we often use the number um, that for di- for dialysis for patients on ki- that have uh, end-stage, kidney failure. And it costs about $100,000 to kind of extend somebody's um, life for a a full quality year. Um, And if you look at left ventricular assist devices, a decade ago, when they looked at that cost, it was about $800,000 per quality adjusted life year. So very expensive. You're spending a million dollars to try and give somebody An extra year of life and typically on a societal level we would say that's pretty expensive and maybe low value but only literally only less than a decade later and five years later we do the same analysis with the next generation of technology and the numbers come out two hundred thousand dollars two hundred thousand dollars per quality adjusted life year so you'd still say wow that's pretty expensive and that's maybe not the kind of value we'd love Mm -hmm. to see but if we hadn't been really pushing the field forward, getting experience with that technology, thinking about how do we how do we do this to where we get to the point where this is actually cheaper and better, and we don't have to spend so much to really keep people alive longer and, and give them a chance at a great quality of life. You know, if we, if we don't spend some of that money up front, if we don't push the field a little bit, we're likely not to advance as quickly. So how do you do that? Well, that's That's really the ethics, the challenge of of medicine when we're in the frontier exploring these new technologies. For Max, you know, he's like, I think, many people that I deal with they they cherish life they, they they're not ready to say I've had enough and I don't want I don't want to go forward anymore I don't want to take the chances of surgery and and maybe being sick and not doing well afterwards and being a burden you know those are possibilities but and but people who want to live they 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 have to take that chance to to kind of, um, have the other alternative, which is that things might go really well and he might feel great and, and not end up with a lot of complications in the near term. So for somebody like Max, um, who whose real alternative of not getting this technology is probably death in the near future, um, it, it's probably worth it. It's worth the chance. And then what I would say is what we need to do a better job of is managing expectations about what can happen, both good and bad. And when it is bad, being willing to, um, I think, accept that and make hard choices after the LVAD goes in um, Mm -hmm. that recognize it doesn't always go well.
2: So we asked a simple question, was it worth it for Max to get the LVAD? But really there are two ways to think about this. On a personal level, was getting the LVAD a good decision for Max? And on a societal level, was giving Max and LVAD
0: a good thing to pay for? And neither of these is easy to answer. No, they're not. And I even wonder who the right person is to answer these questions. After all, patients are always liable to want to take a shot, even if it's a long shot. And Dan Ariely suggested earlier that it's really doctors who know the most about this. So maybe they're the ones who should be making these value judgments.
2: Yeah, right. But when I asked Larry Allen about this, he raised a big caution flag.
3: We're we're also getting into an era of medicine, whereas rather than just paying for what we do, we're being graded more and more on on when we do something, how does it go? And as we move from that volume to value in healthcare. I'm getting graded on what my outcomes are, especially for really expensive big therapies like left ventricular assist devices. And transplantation is not only expensive, but it, if I put a, a, a transplanted donated heart into one patient, there's probably another patient who's not getting it. And so we're also under incredible scrutiny um, for how these patients do with these you know, very expensive invasive uh, therapies. That creates also this very strange and i think slightly disturbing dynamic where i may have a patient get a transplant or a left ventricular assist device it's not going well and the patient may be ready to say this is the end or at least contemplating that and i may agree with that philosophically and personally but from a programmatic and um you know quality measurement standpoint it looks bad. It looks bad. Well, gosh, now now you've only further complicated an incredibly complicated scenario.
2: To be very blunt about this, what he's saying is we doctors get measured on things like 30-day mortality after an operation. So if a patient dies within a month, that's a black mark on the hospital's record. So there's an incentive to keep people alive for at least 30 days. So doctors are conflicted and patients are also conflicted.
0: And the companies that make these devices are also obviously conflicted, and so are the hospitals that implant them. In fact, we had a pretty stark reminder of this early on when we were just starting to think about doing a story about a patient getting an LVAD.
2: Yeah, I'll never forget. Uh, We asked one hospital if we could follow a patient through their experience of getting an LVAD. And the hospital said we could record during the operation, but they asked us to agree in advance that if the patient didn't do well, we wouldn't use their story, and we agreed.
0: And they let us be there during her open heart surgery, the implantation of the LVAD. Everyone was really hopeful that this would give her a new lease on life. She had some big plans, and she was feeling peaceful and confident before the surgery. And the surgery went well.
2: But. A few days after her operation, sadly, she had complications, and she died.
0: And so we started over with Max's story.
2: This early experience raised a bunch of additional ethical issues for us as we produced this podcast series.
0: Starting with the question of whether we should have agreed to only tell the story of someone who made it out of the hospital after surgery.
2: I remember we talked about that a lot. And we thought it was the only way to get live tape of someone getting an LVAD, because the hospitals that implant these have some obvious reasons why they wouldn't want to have us broadcast the story of someone who did poorly. I mean, hospitals like to advertise that they work miracles. They do not put up on billboards, hey, we do risky things, they don't always work. (laughs) No.
0: And when it comes to healthcare, Matt, I, I wonder about the profit motive. If you look at websites about LVADs, a lot of them seem like hype by device companies and hospitals, which presumably make money every time someone gets one. I mean, it sort of shocked me to read a report forecasting the global market for LVADs. It said it will reach about $2 billion in five years. Well, on the one hand, sure, investors are crucial to push life-saving technology forward. But on the other hand, LVADs aren't, I don't know, software apps or cars or fashion where it feels like less of an ethical conflict to make money when business is good. So how much does the profit motive come into play when hospitals and doctors basically push these devices?
2: Well, so I agree. It does seem like device makers and some hospitals too downplay the risks and play up the possible benefits. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that LVADs have to be pushed all that hard because they offer what people with a very serious illness are already looking for which is hope so it's not just that doctors and hospitals have an incentive to not harp too much on risks Uh, typically patients too don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about all the things that could go wrong
0: right and we have to remember that the people who get these devices are generally going to be dead without them and soon So yeah, it's $200,000 to get an LVAD implanted and more for the treatment after that. But as we've learned, if you get one today, well, there's about a 75% chance you'll at least be alive a year later.
2: Yeah, and on average, your quality of life will at least be a little better than your quality of life before the LVAD. Even if it's not great, it is better.
0: But some people do have terrible problems with LVADs.
2: Right, I mean, we've learned about this, about eight or 10% will have a stroke. Um, like max, about a third of people with LVADs will get an infection, uh, and 2% die from power failure.
0: You're kidding me. That really happens? No, that
2: it's rare, but it does happen.
0: Ooh. But I suppose everyone thinks they'll be the person who has no problems and does exceptionally well, or at least they hope so.
2: Yeah, and that's what makes our question for this episode all the more challenging, because what is the value of something intangible like hope.
0: And this means if you think doctors and hospitals and health plans and device makers all have conflicts of interest about who should get an LVAD.
2: And patients are even more conflicted.
0: Which is one reason we at Hard Call turn to you, our listeners, to help answer these tough questions, these hard calls.
2: Yeah, so now you know quite a bit about these issues, about heart failure, about LVADs, Chances of success and failure.
0: And when it comes to end-of-life decisions, what success or failure even means.
2: Right. So it's time for us to wrap up the pilot season of Hard Call with this final question.
0: Was it worth it? Log on to our website, hardcallshow.org and cast your vote.
2: And you can discuss your vote with other listeners there and read up on the issues we've talked about in all of our electronic heart episodes.
0: Thanks for joining us for the pilot season of Heart Call.
2: We've traveled with two patients this season and with their families and the health professionals caring for them through some of the most difficult decisions anyone can face.
0: If you'd like to hear more stories of hard calls in health and medicine, Please tell your friends to subscribe to the podcast and to share it widely. Having lots of listeners is the only way we'll get the resources needed to keep producing hard call.
2: Yeah, and also give us a review on iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. You obviously know how to find us, but others haven't found us yet. And if you write a review, it'll help other people find the hard call podcast.
0: Hard Call is a production of the University of Colorado Center for Bioethics and Humanities. It's produced by me, Elaine Appleton-Grant, and by my co-host, Dr. Matthew Winia. Actor Robert Michael Sanders played Max. Music was composed by Andrew Randall and by Chris McClung. We had theatrical assistance from Charles Packard, former executive director of the Aurora Fox Theater in Aurora, Colorado.
2: Special thanks to the Hard Call Humanities Advisory Team, Dr. Abraham Nussbaum, Tess Jones, Philip Joseph and Lisa Karanen, and finally, Colleen McKelvinen and doctors Dan Matlock and Larry Allen provided invaluable clinical guidance as we produced Max's story.